This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book... How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness by Russ Roberts, one of the true icons of the podcast world. I have not missed an Econ Talk podcast episode in years. Uh, Roberts is, is one of the best, uh, one of, that, that Econ Talk podcast is one of the best uh, interview format podcasts out there, uh, and certainly in my view, the best uh, economics-themed podcast uh, available, and it's it's one that that I certainly don't miss. I was excited to read this book. Uh, I I bought it back when it came out. I think it was 2014. I was working on my dissertation, and this was one of those like I'm, I'm going to read this once I once I finish finish that. So I was excited to get a chance to read this this year, uh, just to to get a, a chance to uh, to see a little bit more of something that Russ has talked a lot about on 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 Econ Talk uh, over the past uh, six years or so. I, I think 2011, 2012. I think he must have. I think that would have been around when he revisited uh, some of uh, the theory of moral sentiments, which is what this this book is about. Uh, and uh, and this this boils a lot of those those things down a lot more. So, as I said, this book is about Adam Smith, and uh, actually, it's something of a, a simplified introduction to Smith's less famous work. Smith, of course, most famous for the the book uh, with the abbreviated title "The Wealth of Nations," which is uh, has has been. One of the most influential books, one of the most important books in uh, in the modern world, all about how uh, the market for the, basically the, the forces of the market work to uh, produce prosperity. When you when, when that that basically free market forces uh, can find can can take uh, self interested parties and uh, and and. Ultimately, despite the fact that everybody's looking looking out for their own interest, and you can't necessarily trust someone, uh, basically market forces and trade. Uh, ultimately, with the proper uh, when the proper structures are in place, the proper conditions are in place, uh, that self interest actually can work its way out uh, to to the benefit of everybody. And of course, uh, that book. Uh, very famous for the the phrase uh, for the for the turn of phrase invisible hand, which has been used as Roberts points out. Uh, it's it's used both in Wealth of Nations and in this book in um, a Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's used once a piece, and in neither case is it used in the way that it tends to be used today. But uh, still very famous this i this idea of uh, of basically invisible emergent forces that 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 uh, bring about results that are something different from the intention of the uh, individuals who are working for their own self-interest. In any case, this book is about the other book, about the other uh, book that Smith wrote, the theory of moral sentiments, which deals with uh, things a bit more, uh, more about the inner circle uh, relationships that people have, but we'll more on that in a moment. Eric, uh, you, I believe have some additional information to share here at the beginning. Yeah. And uh, despite also being a, Longtime listener of the Econ Talk podcast, it's somehow 
blew past me that that uh, this book by Russ Roberts was about uh, the theory of moral sentiments. I, I, I think I had in my head that uh, theory of moral sentiments was a section of the wealth of nations or <laughs> somehow connected to it, but but it never occurred to me that it was a separate book. So I actually went into this Russ Roberts book like a moron thinking that it was about the wealth of nations and, and that I was going to get a, get a little uh, – a little intro from uh, with with some Russ Roberts wit to it, but uh, it was a delightful surprise that it was about uh, his other books. So, so, so how how fast have you? What what speed have you been listening to Econ Talk episodes? Yeah, uh, yeah well, I'm, I'm over two times now. So, yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll listen to a podcast and then my wife will say, "Well, what was that about?" And I'm like, "Hmm." <laughs> maybe maybe I ought to slow that one down a little bit. If you thought you know this was on the wealth yeah. of nations, uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different thing. But, yeah, uh, but some some similarities as we will uh, will discuss as well. So. Well, I mean, they are by the same guy, so yep, two sides of yep. a different, uh, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and and obviously with the title theory of moral sentiments, this this one's more about uh, behavior and. Uh, Whereas the wealth of nations, obviously more on the, the economic side of things. So yeah, more on that in a moment. And before we move on here quickly, we'd like to highlight who it was who suggested this book in the Tim Ferriss show podcast. And this one was suggested by Tim O'Reilly, who is the author of a book that I'll be reading this year, the WTF book. And it's not Wait, what you're what? thinking. It's not what you're thinking. It's what's the future not what the yeah. future. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think that book's going to be, uh, uh, similar to the inevitable by Kevin Kelly futurist book, uh, predicting the future based on current technological trends. Uh, t- so that, that podcast episode was, was pr- pretty interesting. So I think anyway, the future is going to be a lot like a lot of fudge, <laughs> you know, cause life is like a box of chocolates anyway. <laughs> wouldn't be all that bad um so yeah uh, this one was suggested by tim o'reilly and that's uh despite us both wanting to to read it this gave us a, a good excuse to uh, to tie in with our, yeah, our books I, to tie i was it. excited to actually get this one on the list this year like i said i'd been looking forward to read this this one for a while i was not disappointed as it were i, I thought this was first of all it was a really fast read i mean this is like four-hour book i mean something like that yeah. i mean it, it it doesn't take that long to read and uh you know russ russ has uh has well-honed wit and and very much speaks in my register uh you know so i i really appreciated this book uh, a lot on that front highly recommended uh up front for those of you who may not get any further in this podcast definitely one that uh that i do think is is worth the uh the, you know the juice is worth the squeeze on this one but um well, anyway, it's, it's a book from the 1700s. So Roberts does a great job of putting it into modern terms. Oh yeah, and yeah. So it was that was very helpful as well. Yeah, and 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 this is, I, I think, a, a very important book actually, uh, because I, as much as you know, Margaret Thatcher used to go around with with the wealth of nations in her purse, you know, famously, uh, but. Not not many people actually have gone back and, and read a theory of moral sentiments all that much, uh, and a theory of moral sentiments has a lot of things that really you need as as foundation for the wealth of nations. 
Uh, and I think Roberts does a good job of playing up those things that are that are really important. Uh, and and actually, it's worth here before we before we get any further. Uh, talking about the difference between what Smith is doing in The Wealth of Nations, his more famous book, and this one, the less famous, but maybe actually in a lot of ways more important for our era book. Uh, so uh, Roberts himself talks about how in The Wealth of Nations, uh, Smith is really dealing with how people handle how, how basically market forces when people are dealing with one another at a distance. So when people are outside your immediate circle, outside the circle of trust, right? So when, when you're dealing with your family, that's one sphere of influence. When you're dealing with close friends that, you know, that's closer to something like family, you've got people you can trust. The question that Smith is dealing with in the wealth of nations, he's looking at how people manage to trade and benefit from relationships economically with people that there's no reason that they would necessarily no there would there's no natural reason that they would necessarily trust that person and how is it that one person can ultimately trust another despite the fact that both of them know that the other person is most likely self-interested. So he assumes, Smith assumes that people are uh, fundamentally and primarily self-interested. But in the wealth, wealth of Nations, he's dealing with how through trade and through the processes of uh, exchange and basically f- trying to find things that are mutually beneficial, people that self-interest uh, and and through specialization and and you know when the conditions are right, that self-interest can actually, through market forces, be brought be made into something that ends up benefiting everybody else. So you know this is that that's really what he's dealing with in in the wealth of nations is that external stuff. And it's it's really an amazing uh, discovery in a way or or, or a presentation. And especially when you contrast it with the opposite. So he's taking man as he is. And in uh, one one quote that Russ Roberts says, he's mostly interested in how people actually behave, not how he'd like them to behave. But that's an amazing thing when we contrast it to other forms of of uh, governance or uh, uh, economic behavior where. They, uh, the systems try to take people how they want them to be. Yeah, and Roberts and, talks some about that late in the book. Here, he talks about Pol Pot and Hitler and uh, and uh, Mao and the, Lenin, yeah, communist regimes. You know, basically these various, uh, so, particularly socialist regi- regimes of the 20th century that attempted to have the master plan work from the top down. And the problem was that people aren't chess pieces. People actually, as Smith says, uh, and, and Roberts talks about it in the book, uh, and cites Smith on this, Smith says people aren't chess pieces. Chess pieces don't have desires. Chess pieces don't have self-interest. Chess pieces just do what the hand tells them to do. People, on the other hand, have their own ideas about what they should do. So you might move them to that square, and then suddenly they're over in another square. And that completely screws up that central plan. But if you allow those pieces to pursue their self-interest within the within the confines of the board, then eventually they'll find some sort of equilibrium that's going to benefit more and more people as they find ways to to specialize and 
you know, to serve their own self-interest by ultimately finding ways to serve other people. And that that's the really, really, you know, massive insight of the wealth of nations that one of the most influential uh, books of the of the uh, of the modern era for for good reason, and you know has been very influential in in terms of uh, uh, pushing towards uh, the dominance of free market. Even though we're much less of a free market than than Smith, I think would would generally want uh, worldwide and, and in the United States, uh, in England and elsewhere. I think he would he would prefer a freer market, but. Um, you know what we have is very much indebted to to his insights in uh, the wealth of nations. Well, in the in the example you you usually hear from the book is that of the baker, and how his self interest of of wanting to take care of his, of his family that sort of thing uh, that self interest can benefit other people because then the, the other people can buy buy his bread uh, that he created through self interest. So the power of, of the Russ Roberts book is in tying that together with the, the-, the theory of moral sentiments, where on a moral level, uh, Russ Roberts continue, always quotes this, and, and you hear this probably every episode of Econ Talk, but the, the quote that, of, of Adam Smith, that man naturally desires not to be loved, but to be lovely. And so if it's, if it's in the self-interest of a man to act, uh, man or woman, to act out in a way in which they are to be loved, loved by others or to be lovely to others, it's 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 in a self-interested way. But if they're be, if they're behaving in that way, it's going to be beneficial to others. If if they're treating people lovely, or if they're they're seeking to be to be loved, so it's that same idea. The self-interest can lead to it can lead to happiness. It could lead to benefits for others, both on the economic sphere and in personal relations and in, in, in the moral sphere as well. Right. So, so again, the wealth of nations is looking at that sort of big picture, how, how you deal with people who are outside your circle. What the theory of moral sentiments is doing is it's looking at, at that inner circle stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and Smith recognizes that we don't deal with our siblings, our parents, our, you know, extended family or at least you know some extended family, our close friends, we don't deal with those people in the same way that we deal with, say, the seller that uh, of of an item on eBay, or in his day, you know the 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 baker down the street, or uh, say the French uh, textiles trader who you know is who comes through every third month or something in his day. That's something. Th- those are completely different spheres, and the way that people deal with those those spheres are very different. Uh, and so, the wealth of nations is 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 about that bigger piece about about distant trade and how people, basically, how the market can transform self interest into something that ultimately benefits more than just the self, and and leads to broader prosperity for all. Uh, and I should note the difference between Smith in in the way that he presents that and uh, Ayn Rand, who we discussed in, I believe it was our last podcast, but one of, uh, one of our most recent podcasts, I think it was our last one. Uh, Smith does not do what Rand does. So Rand, I think, sees herself as developing Smith uh, in this regard, but Rand basically 
gets to the place where she regards self-interest and even selfishness, which I think Smith would distinguish between the two, but she regards self-interest as a good in itself, as inherently good. And she wants to deal with people as they are, like Smith, but then she concludes that that characteristic of self-interest is good. So you get, you know, the idea of the 1980s, for example, you know, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Smith doesn't do that. And you can see that especially in a theory of more in, in the theory of moral sentiments. He doesn't regard self-interest as an inherent good. He regards it as something that actually, you know, it can be put to good by the market, but it's it's not an inherent good. It's something that and, and to some degree the market has to redeem. It's it's a it's it, it's overall it, it it's more of a negative than a positive. Uh, but but basically, what he does in in a theory of, in the theory of moral sentiments is he's dealing with how people work within a different sphere of human interaction, and particularly in a sphere in which outright self interest. When you behave with outright self interest, it's not going to work very well. You you can't behave only in your own self interest within a family or within you know in a in a marriage relationship which you know uh, uh, Roberts talks about a good bit in this book you can't do that with friends it it's not going to work very well and it's going to lead to a very unsatisfying life so the, the 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 question then is how do people behave how is it that people can manage to behave in such different ways in that internal sphere and that uh, that I think is fascinating. He 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 deals with those separate spheres in separate books, and that's what what Russ Roberts talks about in this book. To me, it's well worth the read. The juice is definitely worth the squeeze on this one. So, Jason, question for you: uh, Have you studied at all on on how religious leaders at the time responded to? Wealth of nations. Not at all. I I no. I would have to take a uh, I would have to go and do some digging on that. That's that's pretty far outside outside my <laughs> sphere of expertise. So I, I yeah. don't know. I don't know for sure. I, I mean, I know I, I know William fixed. Wilberforce loved it. So you know that. Okay. But Wilberforce was was uh, an intellectual and and a bit of an outlier himself. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I, but it, 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 I just wonder because it it. it I know it doesn't go as far as uh, uh, greed is good, but but this idea of self-interest, it's it's not necessarily one that's uh, put forward as good in in uh, Christian teaching. So here here you've got or in Judaism, uh, which is a perspective that Russ Roberts comes from. Uh, yeah. Either Ni- neither one have the idea that self-interest is is a, is a good thing. Yeah. And, and Smith himself it, was was coming out of a out of out of a Christian background in that regard. I mean, he was assuming mm-hmm. that it's not a good. The question is, how is it that despite that, we wind up with things that can benefit everybody else? And and that's, I think, where he and, and, and Rand are quite different because he's coming from very different kinds of assumptions there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, should we uh, go into the next section of our, our favorite quotes? Yeah, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and roll with that. All right. You first. All right. Self-love comes naturally to us. <laughs> Loving our neighbor, not so easy. And I don't know. I, 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 this one, this one struck me as is off a little bit because um, I, I think a lot of us are are a lot nicer to others than we are to ourselves, um, especially in 
in criticism. I, I know my self-talk is a lot more critical than I would ever say to, to anyone else. So I don't know. What, what, what did you think of this one when you, when you read it? I mean, it's, it was, it was, it was a solid quote. Uh, for me, I, the, the whole negative self-talk thing is not, <laughs> not nearly as big of a concern. So, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think I have enough time to, to talk to myself on that, in that way. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I just gotta, gotta get stuff done. But, yeah. um, in any case, uh, yeah, I mean, sol- solid quote. Not not quite as good as the one I'm gonna I'm about to give though. <laughs> Let's hear it. We tried buying local once. It was called the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's that's the best. That, that is the. I'll <laughs> that, give you that one. To me, that's the best quote in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, he, he talks about, how he's saying, you know, the buy local movement has been successful with a very limited number of products, food and some handcrafted items. But he said, we tried buying local once. It was called the Middle Ages. Of course, people were poorer then now for many reasons. But the bottom line is, he says, one reason people were poor in the Middle Ages was that when you mostly trade with people who live nearby, you are bound to be very poor. There just isn't enough specialization possible with a limited set of trading partners. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. And I really, really liked that that whole paragraph. But that that quote of we tried buying local yeah. once. It was called the Middle Ages. It's just vintage Russ Roberts. It's so scathing but so gentle at the same time. And I think he's absolutely right. And it's interesting too, again, looking at the difference between that perspective, which is a very Smithian perspective. I mean, Roberts in the last decade has been has just become a Smithian through and through in this regard. How different that is from, say, the libertarian strain that follows more of the the Ayn Rand side. It, it's very different because for Ayn Rand, it's all about self-sufficiency. It's all about becoming your own person, not dependent on anybody else. But for Smith and for what Russ Roberts is saying here is, no, if you're going to try to be self-sufficient in that way, you're not really understanding, first of all, how prosperity works despite the fact that we tend to want to be self-sufficient and how the market serves, as to, serves to mitigate that at its best. And secondly, how that self-sufficiency on the, on the, in, in terms of, of interpersonal relationships and, and more intimate uh, cases, that effort to be self-sufficient or, or self-interested actually breaks those relationships. That's the road to poverty in every regard. And that's a very, very different take than, say, what you get from the Randian school of things. And, and I, think the, I think Smith understood this stuff a whole lot better. And, and, and we do well to return to Smith and, and, again, to Roberts in this book. I think he, this book is, is a great introduction to this stuff uh, much more often. Yeah, and, and I really enjoyed how he, he tied in love to this section as well. And, and my next quote of love locally, trade globally. So that, that same idea quote. of uh, another one of his quotes, but Smith, Smith felt that we cannot extend the love and concern, both selfless and self-interested, beyond our immediate circle of friends and associates. So you, you often hear people say, well, we just got to love everybody. We just love, love, love. It's, 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 it's all around. Like everyone love. And, and I, I, I really enjoyed that he said, no, like you, you love locally. You, 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 can't, you can't extend the love and concern beyond immediate circle of friends and associates. So love locally, trade globally. I, yeah, thought, I thought that was great. And, and actually expanding again to that paragraph, 
that's a really fascinating, it, it, it's, it's really fascinating. I, I want to read a little bit more of that in a moment, but this also got me thinking a little bit about the biblical command, which is uh, obviously in the Torah, first and foremost, so it's central to Judaism, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and then that becomes one of the two uh, hinge commands or cardinal commands of, uh, of Christianity that, uh, that Jesus boils the whole Torah down to. Jesus says the whole Torah boils down to love your neighbor as yourself, or uh, to love, love, love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, then you fulfill the whole law, which is something that Hillel, the great rabbi uh, who is uh, his his floruit his uh, his high high point uh, as a teacher was a little bit before Jesus, but Hillel had said something very similar as well. Uh, but that idea, the interesting thing to me about the biblical command is the biblical command doesn't say love everyone. It says love your neighbor, right? Yeah. And that gets to to some degree that love locally concept. And I do think, actually, a lot of times we get in trouble when we try to love, we try to love globally, and in so doing, we forget to love locally, because yeah. you, you can't you can't keep that attention on the on the on the near term. You can't love individually in the moment. In that, you can't love your neighbor when you're loving the person across the you know across the world when you're spending that. And that's actually one, another interesting thing. Thinking about uh, about how social media and our efforts to keep contact with people over a distance and lots of people actually can wind up being toxic to our ability to sustain meaningful, intimate friendships in our own locale, you know, close by. Uh, yeah. And so that's an interesting thing, but I'm, I want to read a little bit more of that paragraph because he says, um, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a, a really good boiling down of, of, of both, of, of sort of the Smithian perspective, taking both the, 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 uh, the theory of moral sentiments and the lessons of uh, uh, the wealth of nations and, and boiling them down as he does. And this is all, this is from the last chapter uh, in the book. Our economic system has to be an impersonal system if, if it is to con uh, continue to deliver the life-transforming and life-affirming gifts of better health, better music, and opportunities to interact with people all over the world. We may wish it to be otherwise, but in a world of specialization, strangers have to play a big role in our lives, and that's okay. Fortunately, I don't have to love the CEO of the company that makes a heart valve or the car that gets 40 miles to the gallon or my iPhone. And those CEOs don't have to love me either. They make my life better and more interesting, even though they will never see me or feel for me the way my family does. And that's good. Looking for love? Look locally. We have precious little of it in our lives anyway. Let's reserve it for those we see every day. Love locally, trade globally. I, I, like yeah. you said, that last line is, is just so pithy and so good, but in context, it's even better. And, and yeah. there's a real lesson there. I, I, I think there's, there's a lot to, to chew on there. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. All right, what's your next uh, your next quote? <laughs> Let's see. Um, this one's this one's from uh, from chapter one. Money is nice, but knowing how to deal with it may be nicer. <laughs> Speaking of money, uh, my next one: the bank that wants to be your friend is lying. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, 
let's see another one for me and this one this one connects to one of the main main themes of the book uh both uh smith's book and uh and and what roberts deals with here uh in in terms of how he summarizes it and that's the notion of the impartial spectator which we'll get to in a moment but here we go what spurs us to take care of our neighbor so this is within the context of those closer relationships of the local stuff that that uh, a theory of moral sentiments is really about what spurs us to take care of our neighbor is the desire to act honorably and nobly in order to satisfy what we imagine is the standard that would be set by an impartial spectator. And to me, that's, that's, that, that concept is really interesting, both as a, as a scholar of religion uh, and in terms of, the, uh, of, of looking at things from a more economic perspective, you know, from a, a, a more... Uh, empirical perspective, because what what Smith does, interestingly, is he 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 boils down essentially the function of God in terms of uh, of of a moral judge boils that down in economic terms or more empirical terms, reflecting on that, and basically says, here's how this works. Now, whether you believe in God or not. Ultimately, you're operating as though there were an impartial judge or spectator watching you at all times. And, and Roberts, you know, concedes. He says, listen, God, in, uh, belief in God in this sense is not necessary for this to function, for this to work. But functionally, it does work as though in, in sort of a, a way of thinking about it as there's this, you know, impartial spectator that's, that's watching, whether that's a projection of our own minds or whether there actually is an impartial spectator out there watching is another question. But ultimately, uh, Smith gets to this idea that we're always working this inner calculus based on what some, you know, if someone else who is impartial was watching what I'm doing right now and how that related to other people or whatever, this is what that person would think. And that has tremendous impact on what we do and how we live. I think that's a really interesting insight. And I think it's actually more insightful than a lot of, uh, a, a lot of sociology that, that has, has gone on since Smith. I think his grasp of sociology in this regard and how societies ultimately shape morality and shape the way that people work is, is, is terrific. Uh, and again, would be uh, th- this is a sort. I think a theory of moral sentiment should be required reading for uh, I- introductory graduate students uh, in in sociology or advanced. Uh, you know, uh, even I, I think even uh, you know f- it, uh, this book would be uh, would be a great one for uh, Russ Roberts's uh, introduction here would be a great one for uh, for introductory sociology classes because so much of this is is really looking at social sciences and kind of soci- sociology and psychology as well. And, and Smith was really insightful. Yeah, and, and I liked how he broke it into two different areas as well. So the first being propri- propriety, which he defined as matching responses with those around us. And, and that kind of ties in with the impartial spectator idea of you're, you're, you're acting in a way that, that, that fits into your society, but that can't be the only thing, because if that's, if that's the standard, then what happens when you're in Nazi Germany, like, and you're just matching your response to everyone around you. So he says there, there also has to be a second area and that's virtue and virtue consisting of prudence, justice, and, and 
<laughs> beneficent. Yeah. Um, so prudence, taking care of yourself, justice, not hurting others. And the third one being good to others. Um, so I, 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 that I thought that was very insightful as well, because some, some people may just stop as at the, the, the propriety side of things of, of just trying to, trying to fit in and, and, and do what others are doing. But, um, but there's another standard as well. And, and he, he hits on that. Yep. You got the next quote. All right. This will be my last one. And this ties in a lot with what we've, we've spoken about already. And, um, uh, something I, I that I've, yeah. So the family is a socialist paradise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and Smith actually thinks that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. And, and this is where Hayek also follows Smith to some degree, uh, or to a large degree, uh, where he talks about how people need to be able to distinguish between the way that they handle things in families versus, and, and you can't, you know, Hayek talks about how the instinct is to try to apply the, uh, the insights of how family structures work and all that, uh, to larger, to the larger marketplace. And, and it, it's disastrous because you can't operate on the same assumptions with people that you can't trust in the same way. Uh, and Smith seems to work in the same, the same assumption that, you know, Hey, you know, the family is, a, is, 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 is where these moral sentiments really need to dominate and they should. And this is how people do operate. And this is how things should work. And then outside of that, you have the wealth of nations, which deals with the larger, the larger picture. I got a couple more. So um, next one for me, the chief, this is from this is uh, this is from Adam Smith himself. The chief part of human happiness arises from the consciousness of being beloved. And then he continues, "What so great happiness as to be beloved and know that we deserve to be beloved? What so great a misery as to be hated and to know that we deserve to be hated?" Wow. And, that it, again, Smith has a way of cutting right to the bone in terms of of how he states things, and and you think about that, that's right. Yeah. There, I mean, you can see this with little children. If you, it, it, you know, there's there's nothing that little kids like more than to have someone pay attention to them, like look at them, to be seen, to to actually be recognized as something as as important, and just in 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 like. If you're in a public place and you look at the kid and you just smile or something, that's that kid just gets so just you can see the happiness of like I've been validated as important. Yeah, there, that's a great happiness. And then you know the more so when you when you recognize that you deserve to be beloved, that that there's something there that I'm beloved, that this person loves me because I've earned I, I've I've earned their trust. I mean, heck, we, we we it's nice when when you have an animal that comes to trust you that way that comes to, you know, comes to, you, you come to feel beloved by an animal that you've earned its trust. And now that animal comes around and is so happy when you're there. There's something really gratifying about that. And mm -hmm. there's nothing worse than the opposite. And, and I think that's a really great insight there. And, and again, Smith understands that and then talks about how, yeah, people may operate against their natural self-interest in all sorts of economic ways if you're just calculating based on money because what people really are after is that. 
again that that idea of of humans not only uh, humans want to be loved and to be lovely this is the being lovely part is deserve is being love worthy people want to be loved and to deserve being loved and so that that dominates that whole uh that whole discussion and that that entire drive mm-hmm. so uh uh so yeah that uh, and and you know further uh, uh, Roberts summarizes this and he says, when we earn the admiration of others honestly by being respectable, honorable, blameless, generous, and kind, the end result is true happiness. And interestingly, what does that mean? You can't pursue happiness in and of itself. If you pursue happiness, it's, it, it won't work. But if you can pursue, but if you pursue being respectable, honorable, blameless, generous, and kind, then you'll actually earn the respect and love of others, at which point then you'll actually be happy. So and we've seen that, seen that in other books, Titans books. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, again, putting first things first. Um, mm. And I, I did find, by the way, uh, the, uh, uh, the discussion of Peter Buffett in this book. Interesting. So yeah, it, that was amazing. I I'd, I'd never that. heard that. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that before. And then um, I, I had just read Poor Charlie's Almanac. So it, it was interesting in the, the timing of that. But yeah, base, basically, so you had heard about Peter Buffett before? Yeah, yeah, I, I knew the story. Okay, so yeah, if, if you're not familiar with it, he base it's it's Warren Buffett's son. And he, and, and I, I loved how Russ Roberts did this. He did this multiple times in the book, but he, he would tell a story. Uh, and in this case, he's telling the story about Peter Buffett, but you, you don't know who it is. And he's, and he gives he, it as a hypothetical. Know, yeah. Hypothetical. You know, if, if you had this choice to, uh, to get a huge, uh, inheritance or nine, to pursue you, your, let's say you got $90,000. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or pursue your dream, uh, to pursue music. What, what would you do? And, 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 and then it, the hypothetical comes true in, in, Peter Buffett's life in, in that he chose music over, over, uh, inheriting, uh, a, a ton of money from, from his father. And yeah, that, that was a, that was an amazing example, but tying in with the idea of, of happiness and, and what was that the right decision for him? And, and, but by him presenting that first as a hypothetical, it, it makes you consider that question of what would you do? Would you, would you take the money or would you take what your what would truly give you happiness in your life if if you pursued that uh, that thing? Yeah, and 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 again, Smith is adamant that money itself and fame don't result in happiness. That the person who chooses the money over you know what they would you know what they would actually enjoy more even though the money would make certain things easier that person's a fool they're fooling themselves and uh and 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 actually there's there's a great another another one of my quotes here um is this one is from smith uh he says let's see he says uh what can be added to the happiness of the man who is in health who is out of debt and has a clear conscience that was cool. <laughs> so if but you want to look at what at what Smith defines as essentially perfect happiness, 
and actually, to me, that that's interesting that he puts it this way. I, I, it's it's a better way than I've said it in the past, and you know, I, I don't feel bad about that, given that Smith is maybe the, you know, the the greatest man of uh, the greatest thinker of uh, of the modern modern era. Um, but uh, yeah, I've 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 often said in the past that you know, just being out of debt, like having a paid off house and the capacity to just you know just live. That kind, that financial freedom, being held, just just that to me, being being in that position, having no debt, and having your living space paid for, that is what it is to be wealthy. I've said that in the past. Well, he mm-hmm. adds to that and he says, "Listen, if you are healthy, and then you're out of debt, and you have a clear conscience, nothing can be added to your happiness. Like that. Yeah. That's that's it, man. You've reached you've reached the pinnacle. <laughs> but isn't it amazing that he that Adam Smith wrote that because his, his thought, his, his ideas on the economy created mass amounts of wealth, created mass amounts of money. And here he is kind of like saying, beware. And, and <laughs> even though, even though what, what we talk about in wealth of nations, okay, that's going to create a lot of wealth, but that's not the thing. That's not what we're going for. That's not the end goal. It's really amazing that he that he hit both sides of that, you know. Yeah, and again, this is where I think his his understanding so vastly exceeds that that we uh, what we see from Ayn Rand, for example, because mm-hmm. for Rand that that drive, that push to be to be great, to be wealthy, that's it. Yeah, and Smith's warning is, ah, be careful. That's going to consume you. That's that's not going. Listen, be satisfied with enough and you'll be happy. And ha- being happy is better than being than 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 being than becoming great in that regard. Well, and one, one of my Rand favorite never understood that and you can again, she to some degree I think Smith would look at Rand's life as a cautionary tale <laughs> in that yeah. regard. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Tribe of Mentors, I can't remember who said it, but happiness is wanting what you have. <laughs> Yeah, and that. and that's very much this, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and and beyond this, what Smith then goes to say, and 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 uh, uh, you know, he's got a lengthy quote here where he says, "Look, all you know, the 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 rich and famous and powerful, they get all this, they get all of these these benefits, yes, and everybody recognizes those benefits, and everybody wishes that they had those benefits, but." If you want to be rich and powerful and you're famous and successful, you're going to have to give up leisure and ease and careless security to get that. That's Russ Roberts' summary of, of, of what Smith says. All the leisure... So uh, this, is, this is Smith himself. He says, well, you know, you, you've got all that toil, all that anxiety, all those mortifications, which must be, must be undergone in the pursuit of it. And what is yet of yet more consequence, all that leisure, all that ease, all that careless security, which is forfeited forever by the acquisition. That is the acquisition of being rich and famous. And th- this reminds me, actually, uh, when, I, when I was reading this chapter, this is in, uh, in chapter five, uh, I, I repeatedly thought of my dad over the years saying, I wouldn't want to be Tiger Woods. Are you kidding? This is back when Tiger was, you know, at his peak. And he's like, that guy can't go into a, into a restaurant. He can't walk down the street. Everybody recognizes him. 
that guy can't live a normal life at all. He's like, you don't want to be the number one golfer in the world and the superstar that everybody in the world recognizes. You want to be the number 10 or the number 15 golfer. You're making 20, you're, you're making two, three, four million dollars, you know, say maybe, maybe even, you know, eight or $10 million in a season and nobody recognizes you. You can walk yeah. in and into any restaurant and, you know, maybe a couple people recognize you and that's nice, you know, but you can, you can go to the grocery store and buy your own groceries. You can live a pretty normal life. You want to be the number 20, the number 30, the number 40 golfer in the world, not the number one guy. The number one guy, you got problems, right? <laughs> once you get there, once you're president, you, your, your life is over. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think there's something, something wise there. I mean, the, 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 the proverb, you know, the biblical proverb uh, in the book of Proverbs uh, says uh, a, a rich man's uh, wealth may ransom his life, but the poor man hears no threat. <laughs> Yeah. Right. You have the, that paradox that, you know, you may want riches, but the riches come with the problems of insecurity of their own, as opposed to the security that the poor man already has by nature. So uh, Smith gets this and, 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 and there's a, there's a brilliance to that in this book. I know we've hit a lot of, uh, of, of the ideas through the quotes and, and intro. Um, but let's, Let's get into to the nitty gritty. I, I just have one item I wanted to, to highlight from uh, within this section. And uh, and then Jason will go if, uh, if you have something else you want to highlight as well. And the, the one thing I wanted to, to touch on just a little bit more was he uh, um, Russ Roberts talked about the idea of, of someone in deep grief balancing that out by spending time with others who don't share that grief. Oh yeah. That's a fascinating and, insight and from, it's, from Smith. It's kind of this subtle, like get over it. Life moves on. And, and yeah, that, that was really amazing. So if, if you are in, in deep grief about something, instead of holding up and, and just staying at home and, and trying to, to go through all the emotions, just getting out and being with friends who, who don't have that, that uh, deep grief going on at the time can help balance you out. And I, I, I never thought of it that way before, but, the, but that was a really, really cool insight. Yeah. It, it, and, and again, it's not, it's one of those emergent things that, that Smith understands that nobody really thinks about, but he, mm-hmm. he just, you can see he's been reflecting on how this works. He's like, why is it that, you know, when I'm, when I'm grieving over something and then I spend time with someone who really just doesn't have the same concern about that. I end up feeling better after a while. Now, the the thing he doesn't deal with is the guilt that that you may feel for starting to feel better that the world <laughs> is moving on. You know, because that's actually one of the harder parts about guilt is you know you lose someone very important to you. You lose a parent or a spouse or something. And it's actually the the fact that the world goes on and that you are starting to move on that becomes a that typically becomes a, a source of guilt for the survivor for the person who's left because they don't want to move on they don't feel like things should move on without without the person that they lost mm-hmm. uh, and that that's something that you know Smith Smith doesn't deal with that part of it but he does I think have a tremendous insight about the first part yeah any anything else you want to highlight in uh, a couple more yeah. things um, one is the, the the chapter on self-deception. So this is chapter four, I, I thought was one of the most useful ones, uh, talking about how <laughs> basically uh, this, this boils down 
and, and I found that this was a case so many times in, 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 in Smith. And we've talked about this with a couple other books previously, but, but I think this one maybe even more so than, than the others. This boils down so much of uh, the wisdom tradition that you see in uh, the Bible and in, you know, ancient, in the ancient world boils it down even further in many cases. Uh, you know, I, I find that, that many students that I, I have wind up having some difficulty understanding the, the warnings against pride, say, in, uh, in, the, in Proverbs. You know, they think pride is, is all about thinking that you're, you know, thinking that you're really good or, you know, thinking a lot of yourself. Uh, but I think Smith hits more on, on the source of what this stuff really is when he says, uh, it, well, actually, uh, th- th- this is Robert's summary of, uh, of, of Smith here. He says, we're flawed. Recognizing our flaws is the beginning of wisdom. Recognizing our flaws is what humility is. It's recognizing that there's that there's something to be learned. It's it's being teachable. It's being willing to learn. Being willing to improve. That part. That's what it is. And and the opposite of that is of course pride. When you start to fool yourself into pretending that you're something that you're not, that's that's where pride comes in, and that's a really dangerous place to be. And and I love how Roberts put it that humility is an acquired taste. Once you come to like it, it's a dish best served hot. It's amazing how liberating it can be to say I don't know. And it's absolutely right. You know it, it, that's uh, actually come to think of it, it's you know your your question at the beginning of this episode. Do you know how this was responded to with, with Smith? Nope. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good example, right? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I'd have to go and dig, but that's it's liberating to be able to say that and yeah. to be able to recognize where, where, where your your flaws are, where you have you know weak points and all that. Um, there's there's just there's so much there, uh, and and again, I think uh, I think uh, that whole chapter. You know, Feynman, as Feynman has said, you know, we're the easiest people to to fool. You know, I'm the easiest person to fool for myself. Uh, that that chapter, I think, is 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 really valuable. Well, and our good friend uh, Daniel Kahneman shows up again in that <laughs> that chapter as well. Yeah, of course, it's the year of Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, it is the year of Kahneman, and 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 I think I th- I think I can I can now call this a bit of the year of Smith as well because I'll I'll be reading yeah. of course we'll we'll be talking about the theory of moral sentiments which I'll be reading in addition to this one which is a nice introduction to it. Yeah, but um, the other the other thing that I thought was was really really well done was was chapter eight how to make a world a better place which uh, is where Robert spends a lot of, uh, this is a bit more of Robert's voice than than Smith's most of this book is is Robert's kind of channeling Smith and and using a lot of Smith's words to to and then just explaining a little bit more about what the, what those things mean in chapter eight you get a little bit more of Robert's voice where he's talking about emergent order and how uh, there are unintended patterns that result from individual actions. And basically, uh, and again, he's developing Smith here, but basically this question of, okay, well, how, how can, how can I change the world? How can I make things better? Knowing that this is how we come to develop this, the notion of the internal of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, impartial spectator and knowing that, that, that the way that the world works is, is that, you know, society shapes us. How is it that we can, 
make a difference in the world? And Robert's response is, well, it's a lot like voting. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, casting a vote in an election is pretty much meaningless. Like your vote doesn't matter. Everybody's vote is so infinitesimally small that, and it would only matter if, if things were at a total deadlock and then your vote was the one that pushed it over. But if everybody took that perspective, the world would, the whole, the whole system would collapse. So in each case, it's the tiny little decisions that actually have no real impact in and of themselves. Like it, your impact on a daily basis has, is minimal to this society. And yet your impact multiplied is everything. And he ties this in nicely to Kant's categorical imperative and several other things there. And again, the categorical imperative is, is this idea of um, where Immanuel Kant says, uh, if, you're com- if you come to a, an ethical question, to a decision that's a difficult decision, then what you should think is, well, what would the result be if everyone made this decision, if everyone did what I'm about to do? Because that, that will, that'll tell you whether you should do it or not. And, and there's some wisdom there because, again, even though your actions, my actions, they're pretty much zero. I mean, how many people actually listen to this podcast? But at the same point, impacting one person, like your impact on your, on your daughters, like that impact is going to multiply. And it does have ripple effects that influence things in ways that we, we can't really see. And that, that order emerges from, from, from all of our combined behavior. And actually, I, the, the other place that, that this got me thinking about is actually the sexual economy, um, which is something that, uh, that uh, and I know he's controversial, but, uh, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with his work and, and, and uh, have some uh, respect for, for, for where he's gone, particularly in this area. Uh, the work of Mark Regneris, the uh, sociologist from University of Texas, where he talks about the, and, and we'll link the video in the, in the show notes, he talks about how uh, there's a sexual marketplace out there and that each one of us in the decisions that we make in that marketplace impact everybody else's price. Hmm. Right? So, you know, if you're, the, if, if one person decides that, you know, buying it, that, that, uh, that yeah, you know, buying a drink for me is enough for me to go home with you. Then that begin that that has a ripple effect on the price for everyone else in in terms of that market of what's expected in terms of that exchange. Uh, and all of this is emergent, and we don't think about it when we make our own individual decisions. But every one of our individual decisions impacts the larger market socially whether whether it's we're talking about money or whether we're talking about something like the sexual marketplace or whether we're talking about any other number of things each one of our decisions impacts everybody else even when it doesn't seem to and when when you can't tell that it does it's, and it's a, it's it, it hits the idea of the invisible hand because no one's in charge and and I loved the other other example that he gave of the word googling uh, <laughs> to where google google became a verb and much to Google's he, chagrin. <laughs> yeah. And, but, it, but it's that idea, like anytime you say that, like Jason, if you say, Oh, I, why don't you Google this? Anytime you say that you're adding, you're reinforcing it, but there's no one person that started it. There's no one person that keeps it going. It's, it's kind of everybody doing it 
and not even necessarily really thinking deeply about it. You're just saying, oh, I just, just Google that. So I, I thought that was a really helpful example that he gave too on that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I really agree. I mean, that's, again, it's, it's the way language gets changed and language functions without us ever, like we, nobody makes that decision, but everybody makes the decision. And the and, spanking one too, like, yeah. he, there's a quote the, this quiet revolution in parenting has happened without any legislation. So most, most parents don't spank anymore. And, and it was, but it wasn't a law. It, it wasn't something that was passed on the, from, from the top down. So yeah. yeah and really, in fact, really had it been passed legislatively, it probably would not, that, that change would not have happened nearly as effectively. And he points to, uh, the, the drug war as an effort mm-hmm. to get, you know, to, to change these sorts of things that is ultimately completely unsuccessful because it doesn't account for how things actually work yeah. in that regard. Uh, and, and that's where chapter nine comes in. And he talks, again, he ties that back to some parents, you know, how not to make the world a better place. And he says, listen, you know, at some point, paradoxically, it can be better to leave some things alone rather than to try to steer them. And it's true with parents. I've watched this with, with some parents that I've, I've, I've observed, especially with, as their kids reach adulthood and they try to kick and scream and do everything to get their kids to make this or this decision and, you know, make not to be around this person or that person. And the more they kick and scream, the more the kid does exactly what they're telling them not to do. And I'm sitting there like, listen, you're, you're playing this wrong. Like the best thing you could do is let the kid make the decision, but you have to, you have to be willing to step back. Yeah. It's, it's hard, man. Yeah. <laughs> Anything well, else? No, that's, uh, I'm ready to, to hit the conclusion. Yeah. That's let's go ahead and conclude. All right. Yeah. I generally, I, I, especially with this reading project, I, I would rather go to the original book than read a book like this where you're reading about it. But I, I think this is an exception because Russ Roberts did such a good job with this book it it gave uh, I, I I thought it was so cool to hear you say that you are reading theory of moral sentiments later this year, but that you read this first and it actually it you know it probably help uh, help your reading of the, of the book. Um, so th- this is a unique be- book in that sense, uh, and and it was just an overall very pleasant book. I mean, it was a pleasant, enjoyable book to read. It tied in very closely with and and was actually. Uh, Russ Roberts at the end said he modeled it after how, how Proust can change your life, which was from our list of books last year. And again, uh, Proust's main book is like seven volumes or eight volumes long. And so I knew I'm never going to read that in my life. So I I might as well read this kind of intro (laughs) to the book, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 read this book. I, I mean, it was, it was great. And, and Jason, I loved how you tied it in contrasting it with Atlas Shrugged and how this may be more of a pure version of, of those ideas of, of what, uh, Ayn Rand is, is putting forth. This is a pure and more holistic and more probably moral, uh, view of, of the economy and, and, uh, self-interest and, and all those things. It, it might, Gets you thinking even even deeper on a lot of those topics. So, what yeah. what what's your conclusion? Oh, I, I agree. I, I agree with basically everything you said. I think this is well worth the read. Uh, for most people, Smith's language is not going to be accessible. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and normally I would steer people to read the primary sources, especially you know those who really want to understand something. But I I think this has this is one of those rare books where where Roberts has actually to some degree taken Smith, taken that primary source and done secondary work that is actually its own primary work. This is a, this is its own book. So he is working with Adam Smith, but he's 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 basically working with Adam Smith from a 21st century perspective. And that in itself makes this really, really valuable uh, as, 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 a, uh, as a book to read. And again, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the quality of the writing and, the, uh, and how easily this, this reads is, is, is a real plus. Uh, like you said, I, I I think it's it's uh it's definitely one of those like read this not that read this not Atlas Shrugged, uh, even though you know the latter is 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 a novel and you know you may be interested in the in the uh, in the story. This one is where this one I think uh, has a much like you said a much more holistic uh, and bigger picture view of morality and and how people work that goes beyond the drive for greatness and eros this this says you know there's more to the world than just eros there's more to the world than this this drive for success or self-interest or whatever else and we if we limit ourselves to that then ultimately we're we're cheapening things and we're not going to be we're not going to be as happy as we would be otherwise so uh so yeah i i i i I definitely advise this uh, as as a book to read for uh, for anybody and and for those in higher ed or even in high school. Uh, I think this is one of those books that for certain sociology classes or even psychology classes, um, but especially sociology and, and economics classes. I think this is uh, the, the specific chapters of this or even the whole book are uh, are well worth. Uh, taking a look at and as the uh, as those students get into more advanced stuff, get them into Smith, get them into the theory of moral sentiments. We should be uh, looking more at that stuff, uh, particularly in the in the present era, where where I think we need that uh, need a lot of what Smith has to say more than more than we ever have. So uh, so yeah, quality stuff. Well, good. That'll do it for us today. Uh, just a reminder that we are on pa- Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, Patreon. <laughs> Yep. We are on Patreon, everybody. If you, uh, if you've gotten anything out of this, uh, episode, uh, or any of our other episodes, uh, you know, a little, uh, tit for tat would be nice. You know, a little, a little, a self-interested exchange, uh, well, that is have, in this case, unique, less self-interested. And we have a very unique offer that, uh, you could, you could actually be the first person to ever have supported the podcast. So, um, <laughs> We're at patreon.com forward slash books of Titans. And we have uh, some different uh, donation levels and uh, they're quite, quite funny as well. If, if you're, if you're have a chance to look at the page, if you have so, a sense of humor, yeah, if, if you, yeah, if, so. if you're into that sort of thing, anyhow, but, uh, otherwise you can also find us. Yeah. At uh, the, the books of Titans website and uh, Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, you want to you close this out, Jason? Lots of stuff, L- lots of places to find us, and this is just a, a terrible outro. But uh, either way, this bad outro's notwithstanding. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving, and keep it real. Thanks for listening.
I made this. <laughs> 